When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, linguist David J. Peterson, that's right, the linguist who invented High Valyrian and Dothraki. He's done work for the MCU, and he specializes in inventing fictional languages, but making their grammar and syntax work within the universe uh, very few people in the world can do what he does, and I appreciate it greatly. David and I cover Tyrion's second POV chapter. Steve and I will continue our rewatch of Season 2 as we look at Garden of Bones. Just a quick note on our Manscaped ad. I just want you to know that Steve was not aware that I was going to be reading that ad. I sprung it on him. So everything he says during that ad read is totally impromptu. And I found it highly entertaining. I know it's seven minutes long, but man, we go all out for our ad partners here at Electric Boogaloo. Bird's Eye View this week, uh, rather than just monologuing, I do a little interview with a friend of mine, Chris Keith, who is an expert on ancient book culture. Without further ado, here is Boss Man Aaron. Ask Aaron anything! From The Expanse, we know that one of the key actors is going to go bye-bye at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Let's say you can recast, you have all the power to recast that actor, but you have to choose an actor from Game of Thrones. Oh, done. Done. I mean, have you seen uh, the Kingsman like sequel? Pedro no. Pascal with a drawling southern accent uh, and a cowboy yeah. hat with a whip. I mean, uh, just just yeah, that's that's a massive upgrade. Yeah, I yeah, mean, there's no, Pedro there's Pascal no way there's no way you get Pedro Pascal because he's got like you know Game of Thrones Amando money now. Uh, he's got Wonder Woman money now. He's got Wonder Woman money. He's got Kingsman money. He's he's got he doesn't need your your silly uh, space uh, <laughs> opera. But he would be an amazing Alex. Holy shit, yeah. he'd be an amazing Alex. He would be great. He'd be great. Um, right? That's good. That's good. See, this is what I'm talking about. Because I'm I'm trying to think if there's any other characters of like kind of East Asia. And that's the thing is Pedro Pascal wouldn't be East Asian. He'd mm-hmm. be kind of like South American playing as East Asian. There weren't a lot of East Asian characters on Game of Thrones, right? Like uh, Doctor Bashir, is he? Wasn't he? Yeah, like I don't some... know. I always thought he was Latino, but I could be wrong uh, about that. Doctor Maybe he's Bash... Spanish. Is he Spanish? Sadig? With the last name of Sadig, he's got to no, be. I don't know. That's a good question. He could be he Middle could be Eastern a Spaniard because there's. Be... Oh, he's huge... from the Sudan. He's African. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, 
So yeah, that's not exactly, but it's that's that would be. But the thing is, is he's just. I don't think he. Alexander Sadig is a great character uh, actor. Um, I don't think he would do great for Alex. He doesn't have that no. bombacity. You kind of need that sort of young brash. You need the kind of guy that wants to go hang out in a cowboy bar and really enjoy it. And he's also gone to sea. That's crucial to the. Uh, you know, like, like he can't be like a twenty-year-old. It needs to be, you know, late thirties, forties, even early fifties, if you can get it. Um, but yeah, mm, interesting. Okay, so it, hey, everybody, if you're not watching the Expanse, you gotta gotta tune in. Pretty good show. If you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. David, I'd like to start with a game. You'd be afraid of playing a game with me? Always. Okay. This is a game called Overrated, Underrated, or Properly Rated. It's pretty <laughs> simple. I, I throw out a, a topic and you tell me what you think about it. Okay, sounds good. All right, so your three categories are overrated, underrated, or properly rated tacos. Oh, brother. You know, uh, I have to say, at least from where I'm from, uh, properly rated. Uh, I mean, a taco is just a fantastic thing. It's a simple thing, and I think people are coming to appreciate that more and more, that a taco can be anything. It needs a tortilla, probably, um, and something inside. Uh, but otherwise, it doesn't need to be as restrictive. Uh, and I really so you're originally, think, are you originally from yeah. San Diego, or did you just spend some time in San Diego? Uh, I'm originally actually I was born in Long Beach. Um, okay. So, but originally from Southern California, I lived all my life in Southern California, outside from four years at Berkeley and one year in Fresno. And of course, my uh, my family, at least my mother's family, is from Mexico. So we grew up with uh, with Mexican food. Uh, and I'm really proud that somebody like uh, Gustavo Arellano has come out and kind of rescued the taco because, you know, mm. it's one thing where people at, on one hand think, oh, it's just cheap. It's nothing. And then somebody comes out and says, well, tacos, they're actually really special and they always have to be this way. Uh, I think uh, Gustavo Arellano, he has really nailed it as far as what the taco means. And I think we're there. So, yeah properly rated properly yeah rated. okay now this may be geographically specific because you're saying as a native southern californian yes who has roots in mexico yes uh the, the taco is properly rated but you may have a different opinion of that had you lived or spent you know considerable time somewhere else in the world well i i will say this i have been to mexican restaurants in places like Texas and Missouri and have experienced some of the worst food I have ever eaten in my entire life. Um, <laughs> these, these are fighting words. Texans are really excited about their, their Mexican food. They don't have Mexican food. Um, <laughs> they have something called Tex-Mex, which is a food all its own and is distantly related uh, to Mexican food. 
much the way say that I don't know Phoenician and Hebrew are related. <laughs> I, I have to say it's more distant than that. Uh, more distant <laughs> than that. It's kind of like maybe like uh, Dutch and Proto Indo European. You know, there's been a lot of oh threat. geez. You know what? I've had I've had wonderful mole in Texas, uh, but it could have just been my experience. I will have to take your word on you, that. You will mole? have to take Come my on. word. Yeah, no, I, you will have to take my word on. Uh, underrated, overrated, or properly rated diphthongs. Overrated. Uh, highly, highly overrated. Um, I really despise diphthongs. Uh, diphthongs in the traditional sense, which is that um, you know starts as one vowel, ends in another, as another, but treated as one vowel. I hate them. I absolutely hate them. <laughs> you know, them. I don't even like the word. I do not like the phonetic feel of that mm-hmm. word at all. It's very uncomfortable to have to say diphthong as opposed to diphthong. Yeah, it's it, ridiculous. It's, it, it's not pleasant. But yeah, English... It's an, un, uh, it's an uncomfortable pushing together of syllables in the word, which <laughs> almost bespeaks the word. I know. And like, there also, there's no diphthongs in it. We should be at least pronouncing it, you know, diphthong or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but no, right. terrible, terrible. English is one of the worst. Dutch, I still can never wrap my head around. And have you heard how they say the word no in Britain? It's got like five vowels in it. No. Yeah, I lived no. in Britain for a number of years, and uh, I still don't know how many vowels are in the word no. Atrocious, atrocious, don't like it. Anyway, overrated. Okay, overrated, underrated, or properly rated, Thor, the Dark World. <laughs> you asked me that. You, you know what? Me Let me preface this. I was going to mess with you. I know that you worked on that movie. And I was going to mess with you. And then I was thinking about it. I was thinking, you know, that that movie actually is probably underrated. Because yeah, it actually, gets trolled yeah. so much. And if you sit down and just like, you know, you, you divorce it a little bit from the MCU and just watch it as a film without the expectations of some of the other films, it, it's watchable. It is a watchable movie. Yeah, I, I would definitely say underrated. So, I mean, from, from my uh, experience, there were a lot of things that had to be cut out of the script, uh, which would have made it oh. better. But, um, however, even so... I mean, I don't know what it is with people in Marvel movies. I mean, sure, there there are good ones, right? The, yeah. I mean, Endgame was great, but like, what do you need? I mean, <laughs> it's Chris Hemsworth. He's very charming, very very attractive, very entertaining. Yeah, uh, the... Loki is there. It's it's fun. It's a fun movie. I thought it was genuinely funny in a few ways that I was not expecting. I would recommend l- listeners give it another try. Just, just yeah. you know, it's it's not Ragnarok, but give it another try. Yes, thanks. All right, now we're going to be covering Tyrion's second POV chapter, and I think this chapter does the most so far to intermingle the themes of ice and fire. All right, so here's what I'm going to do: I'm going to do a, a quick synopsis of the chapter, and then we can fill in any gaps in our conversation. Okay. Uh, This is a Tyrion POV chapter. In it, we learn about the geography of the north uh, between Winterfell and the Wall. We also learn about Tyrion's internal landscape, the contours of his thoughts, interests, and his regard for Jon Snow. 
From his view, John is coming to a harder realization that the Night's Watch is populated by scoundrels and that he was a fool to think otherwise. We learn of Tyrion's budding rivalry with Ben Jen Stark, his love of dragon lore, and his relentless bookishness. We hear of Aegon's conquest, some of the history of Westeros, and the various uses of Dragonbone. Tyrion and Jon have a conversation about books, bastards, and beasts. After Tyrion teases Jon and angers him, Ghosts upends Tyrion. Eventually, Jon and Tyrion share a laugh about it and return to camp for some squirrel stew and more of Tyrion's wine. That's my synopsis. How'd I do? Oh, well enough. Yeah. All right. Sounds good, good to me. Good, good, good. All right. So, guest choice. Would you, David, like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme? Or shall we just climb the ladder of chaos together? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I was going to say Tyrion, but on the other hand, climbing the ladder of chaos just sounds so much fun, doesn't it? <laughs> it could. The, the ladder could include Tyrion. I mean, one would assume. It's a great Tyrion chapter, and I find it interesting because it reveals a lot about Jon Snow and... I think that one of the previous Jon Snow chapters reveals a lot about Tyrion. So these two are kind of sort of reflecting off each other a little bit. Yeah, I, I will, I'm just going to come out and say at the outset, I don't care about Jon Snow as a character at all. Really? Uh, I, don't, I don't find him very interesting on his own. The only time that Jon Snow is interesting to me is when he is interacting with specific people. Um, and... At the top of my list is uh, is Tyrion, uh, so that's why this is this for me. You know, because the early early days when I was reading this for the first time, that was really uh, this was really a fun chapter for me because I liked I really liked what I got from their interaction. I also yeah. love him interacting with Arya. It's also good, and uh, him interacting with Catelyn is fun as well. I think any scene Tyrion's in or any chapter that Tyrion's in is going to be interesting with very few exceptions. And I think that you almost need a character like Jon Snow or at least a few characters like Jon Snow so that a a character like Tyrion can really shine. I want to go. Well, all right. I I was eventually going to get here, but I'm going to go ahead and jump. Yes. So I'll, I'll say yes at the outset. If you have a more, and I really don't want to offend people who love Jon Snow, but I was going to say, if you have a more wooden character like Jon Snow, sure. it helps because uh, because then Tyrion does indeed get to do some really fun stuff, like with uh, Jorah. <laughs> yeah, Jorah. That's right. That's right. Now, but, I, um, now here, now in in Jon's okay, defense, he's that. fourteen. And he's certainly oh, yeah. not fully developed, and I think he will. I think he will become more interesting as the story progresses. But you know, I think he's half baked at this point. That's my yeah. No, but no, but I also uh, I I will say like I also liked the early bits with uh, Jon Snow coming to the Wall because you kind of get you know a little bitty mini Hogwarts there. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> and 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 John interacting with a bunch of, you know, a bunch of very salty characters that uh, that we haven't seen him interact with. We haven't seen him interact with that type of person previously. Uh, so I enjoyed that, too. Um, 
So that can be fun. But um, should I jump to this already? Okay, fine. I'm going to jump to this. So going back to Tyrion, though, um, it is a lot of fun to essentially see Tyrion get the opportunity to tee off on people because essentially he's the he's often the Groucho Marx and everybody else is his straight man. You right. know, he is always well, almost always because that's what we're getting to. But he's he's always the smartest person in the room. He's always the funniest person in the room and the most incisive wit. And really, the only way anybody can gainsay him is to do like what Ghost did, basically to physically overpower him. Sure. Because they can't beat him at wits. However, there is one person that can. And those are my favorite parts of the entire series. And those are scenes with Tyrion and Tywin. Because that is the only time you ever seen Tyrion completely outmatched. And that makes his character interesting because uh, it, it's it's a ton of fun. It's a ton of fun to see, you know, Tyrion just, you know, snapping one liners off and getting one over yeah. uh, people, uh, even people that he he grows to respect like John. But um, but there really are no scenes in that entire series like Tyrion and Tywin where you get somebody who is really smart, really witty, who is still getting outmatched at every step and not physically but but mentally um and it really puts his character to the test uh and it it just i don't know it lights up my brain Uh, those interactions they're so intense i love them. so let me ask you this given that Tyrion's something of a heavyweight when it comes to dialogue and that john suffers the dialogue problems that most the stark adjacent men do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that Tyrion is bullying John? Do you think that he's doing John a favor or is it both? Oh no, it's absolutely both. It's, it's, you don't want to go so far as to say bullying, but I mean, essentially, yeah, that is, that's what's happening. He's kind of, um, you know, he, (laughs) John is outmatched. And Tyrion is having a little bit of fun with him. However, uh, it doesn't go it doesn't go too far. I mean, obviously, in John's opinion, or uh, it does go too far. But you know, as they kind of make up afterwards, uh, he realizes that you know actually Tyrion was was speaking truly, um, and perhaps Tyrion you know just assumed that that was. That what he was telling him was common knowledge, essentially. What he was telling him about the Night's Watch was common knowledge, uh, but it wasn't to John. Um, so I'm going to read this little portion here. I just think it's brilliant writing. Sure. Um, all right. So s- stop it, Jon Snow said, his face dark with anger. The Night's Watch is a noble calling. Tyrion laughed. You are too smart to believe that. The Night's Watch is a midden heap for all of the misfits of the realm. I've seen you looking at Yorn and his boys. Those are your new brothers, Jon Snow. How do you like them? Sullen peasants, debtors, poachers, rapers, thieves, and bastards like you all wind up at the wall, watching for grumpkins and snarks and all the other monsters your wet nurse warned you about. The good part is there are no grumpkins or snarks, so it's scarcely dangerous work. The bad part is that you freeze your balls off, but since you're not allowed to breed anyway, I don't suppose that matters. So, I mean, that's, I mean, he's laying it on thick. And then, of course, right after that, Ghost's kind of 
settles the argument, I suppose. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I think I think he's sort. I, if if there's a, if there's such a thing as sort of mind bullying, I think I think that's what's happening here. I, I think, and I think that Tyrion knows it afterwards. He feels a little bit guilty that he lays it on so thick afterwards. You know, this may be biased talking because, of course, we just as readers, you can't help but grow to love Tyrion of course. Uh, and root for him. But I, I just. I feel like when I'm reading that he's laying it on thick, but I feel like he is at the same time commiserating and going over, you know, something that John should know. Uh, Whereas like, I I want you to imagine uh, that speech. It would be delivered differently, but I want you to imagine Tywin being there instead of Tyrion. Um, Mm. And, him being quite direct and quite honest about what John was doing and his lot in life. Um, there would be no warmth or humor there. Mm, you know, mm. it would take on a very different tone and it would, I mean, especially given his, uh, his political power would be very frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Tyrion always has, it's an odd to think about this as a, strength but essentially in his back pocket he always has his his physical weakness in that like you know basically he knows that at any point in time anybody could shut him up if they wanted to um and i think that he kind of assumes that is in the common ground at all time Hmm. um i don't know so i i don't i don't know i i don't read it as straight bullying but I I will admit that there may indeed be bias there because you know you are you are supposed to like this character. I think you're supposed to like everything. him. I think that there's also something about Tyrion where he walks into every room already swinging verbally. <laughs> yeah, like like he he knows he knows there's going to be someone in that room that's going to make some stupid joke that he's heard a thousand times, and he just decides you know I'm going to come in swinging. I'm going to come in. And lay down the law with an insult or some witty, self-deprecating humor or something like that so that people know what they're dealing with. That they know that they're dealing with a warhammer of a mind. And I think that that can, I mean, maybe despite himself, maybe he does it too much because he's expecting a a war of words from the get-go. But boy, it's great to read. I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't want to, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily want to like share an office cubicle with Tyrion, but boy, <laughs> he's fun to read on the page. It's, I think it's also a bit of a, a youngest sibling uh, syndrome in oh, that yeah. if you imagine like, you know, any sort of meeting or get together or whatever, nobody's saying, oh, hey, was Tyrion there? <laughs> Right, right. (laughs) You know, he's in a room, you know, you're not going to pass him over. Um, And I think that's probably something he's consciously or unconsciously always aiming for. Yeah. And he knows he he kind of walks around with a spotlight on him, I think. Mm -hmm. So he's going to make the most of it. I want to talk about for a moment, just for a moment about Tyrion's drinking. Mm. Tyrion... You get the sense he drinks a lot of wine, right? So that, that yeah. that's okay. That's that's fine. And then you realize how much like he's brought his wine all the way from Casterly Rock. And I get the sense that for the amount of drinking that he's doing, 
he just has barrels and barrels of wine. And then I realize, okay, so it's eight men traveling, but they're traveling with 20 horses. I mean, how many of these horses are carrying Tyrion's wine? I mean, he's sharing the wine. That That's fine. But oh my gosh, are you... I, I have this image of Tyrion and seven companions riding up the King's Road. And then there's maybe 10 horses that are just carrying barrels of wine. That That's the image I'm getting. You know, there's uh, there are times in life where you realize because you're interacting with somebody new that there are things that you simply take for granted. And I like to imagine that 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 is basically Tyrion, not as if he's going to any extra effort or giving this any thought, but it's like, well, going up north, so let's uh, load up the wine horses. Um, and then that's just the way he lives. Uh, you know, it's just the way he lives his life. He makes he makes an estimate. He says, I'm going to be gone about this long, so I need this many wine horses. And, and then he goes. <laughs> Doesn't give it a second thought. It's just life. <laughs> At one point he says... Um, he calls us a curious fellowship. And I want to know, do you think that that's a, a, a wink and a nod to Lord of the Rings? He says, he <laughs> You're says, probably right. Oh my he God. says, uh, oh. there were eight, eight in the party. There were eight in the party by then, not counting the direwolf. So in other words, he is counting the direwolf, right? Because by saying yeah. I'm not counting the direwolf. So there's eight plus the direwolf. And then later on in the, he says, it's a curious fellowship for the King's Road or any road. And I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds, uh, that's a, a pretty clever way to disguise it. But I think that that's a, a Lord of the Rings wink. Yeah, I think I, I, I just glossed right over that. You know, I never read the Lord of the Rings, so it's not often on my mind. But yeah, I think that's deliberate. Oh, it's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> okay, so notable introductions in this chapter. There's Jick, there's Morik. Uh, we hear about the Wolf's Wood and the Mountains. We hear for the first time the names of Aegon's dragons. Um, yeah. and, and maybe you could help me pronounce these correctly. So, Balerion, Moraxes, and Vagar. Is that how I say those? Uh, that's how you say them in the English reading of the series. How would I say those, the names of those gods in High Valerian? Meraxis is uh, is the first one, and then you know, before getting the third one, remind me. Okay, so it's, it's Vagar. It, yeah, it's, normally what was the second one was it Valerian? Valerian's always the last one. Uh, Vagar, okay. but Vagar is V H A G H A R. Okay, so yeah, Meraxis, Valerian, uh, and then the third one. Let's talk about this. So. <laughs> That's there the one is, I want. I was like, I'm not sure how to say this. I've got to ask. I've got to ask David about this. There is a uh, tendency amongst fantasy authors to throw in meaningless consonants in places, <laughs> um, and uh, that name in particular has given me a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, the thing is, like, because. You often do see H's after things, uh, right, in, in various sure. languages, but they, they usually mean something. So yeah. every time that we have like a PH or a TH uh, or even a KH, right, floating around in one of our languages, they're reflective of 
an older sound where that made a difference, right? Sure. Um, even if it doesn't anymore. So obviously T and TH is different in English, but it's not in French, for example, where you will see TH written for words that came from Greek or Latin that had it. But it's not as if uh, these types of things happen randomly. Okay, so uh, it's reflective of something that actually happens in the language. Right. Like, for instance, in Hebrew, before the, the vallification, you'd see an H at the end of a word or a, or a hey at the end of a word, mm-hmm. because that was what told you to, you know, that, that this word is going to sound like it ends with a vowel. That's right. But So that's why Sarah ends with an H, for instance, right? But it yep. seems like Martin is just throwing in H's willy-nilly. <laughs> yes, and that's fine to do after certain consonants. It's fine to do after uh, after stops, right? So sure. P, T, and K, it's fine to do that. Uh, I can resolve that as a language creator. It's even fine to do after things like nasals, which he did in Dothraki. So like you have, uh, and, and after R and L, it can do things. Right. So we have uh, this phrase, which is K-H-A-L. K-H, it's like, sure, that's going to be kh. We can do that. That's fine. Then you have R-H-A-E. And I was like, that's fine, too. You can pronounce those two letters in a row. <laughs> uh, it's basically a voiceless R. And then you have M-H-A-R. So he's got three consonant H things right in a row. But you can do that. It's kind of a voiceless nasal, or you could just pronounce the two things right next to each other. That happens in Swahili. Um, so mahad, that's fine. However, with fricatives, a fricative is a sound like right. something where there's nice air passing through. Mm-hmm. What on earth is VH supposed to mean? It doesn't mean anything. That's not something that exists. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, so, from a from a sort of a I modern are, English perspective, we see consonants all the time that we don't pronounce, right? Mm-hmm. And so but, you figure, just throw it in. <laughs> yeah, why not? Just just throw it in. It'll make it look antiquated. And uh, you know, I'm not really concerned with how this language might have evolved over time. But that's exactly the kind of thing that you're interested in. Yeah, and so the problem is that it only occurs in that name. It doesn't occur anywhere else. And it's not very clear what exactly the sound ought to be. However, in analyzing Valyrian, I discovered something very interesting. Just the, all the Valyrian names throughout this whole thing, there's no F. Um, and there is a distinction, by the way, between things that come directly from High Valyrian and something that come from daughter languages. Huh. And you can tell. So like uh, like just looking at the word Sybass, you know that this is like Valyrianate, like it comes from the Valyrian family, but it's not from Valyrian. And it's not. It comes from Volantis. And so that gives you an idea of what Volantine might sound like, which is great. And mm. it also gives me something to work with when I decided, okay, what is this ultimately going to come from in High Valyrian without having to mess with its sound system? Hmm. And indeed, I, I did. I, I came up with an origin for Saibas. But with this word, with, with Vagar, it put me in a difficult spot. Valyrian only had V. And I had, uh, I suppose, given his uh, George R. R. Martin's influences, I supposed that this V was going to come from something that might have been pronounced a little bit in between V and W at one point in time. So va, wa, wa, you know, something very mm. much like that. And then later came on to be pronounced very strongly as V. 
what I theorized was that in some of the daughter languages, they might have developed a unique sound F that didn't exist in High Valyrian. Ah. And if you think about High Valyrian was supposed to have a writing system, right? If you think about them trying to write this sound that has yeah. no obvious correspondence, they might say, well, let's take this thing, which is very voiceless, and put it next to this V to indicate that it's part of one and part of the other. Right. And so so that, it works like a PH, in other words. Yes. And so it actually would be pronounced something like Fagar in that language. But... Here's the important part. As that gets reabsorbed into High Valyrian, they still don't have F, right? So sure. it's kind of like spelling something with a TH in French. They don't have a TH or anything close to that. So, you know, théâtre, you know, it's just going to be pronounced like a T, even though it's going to be spelled TH. So as you bring it back to High Valyrian, it retains the spelling, but it's still just pronounced Vagar. Vagar. Okay. All right, now since uh, we're theory crafting, okay, let me th- let me throw mm-hmm. another idea at you. You could totally reject this if you want to. Sure, but I'll take I'll take it. I'm I'm okay. excited. All right, these dragons are named after gods, right? Yeah. Gods are normally inherited. Uh, it's it's very rare to have a a culture invent their own god. Mm-hmm. And so, in other words, like you know, Rome borrowed their gods from Greek, and they got new names. But not always, and the Romans borrowed their gods from the Egyptians and whatnot. What if this pre this is a language that predates High Valerian because it comes from some sort of dead language from whence the god came? Uh, that is also a possibility that I would play with if it came to that. Uh, <laughs> that's a, a last ditch effort <laughs> pretty much like you, you you don't want to do that too much you don't want to do that too much because <laughs> i mean it's basically like saying a wizard did it <laughs> <laughs> it's space magic is what we're doing so that that would be the space magic analog to linguistics yeah all right well i'm, I'm glad <laughs> i'm glad all right show show versus book differences you you don't get a whole lot of the road from Winterfell to the wall in the book. A lot of the geography, a lot of Tyrion's interior world is left out. You don't get any sense that Tyrion has a rivalry with Benjen along the road, although they do bring in a sort of a hostile exchange between Tyrion and Benjen once they're at the wall. I mean, we hear about Aegon's conquest. A little bit of his strategy, which I thought was interesting against Lauren Lannister. Uh, did you see any notable book versus show differences when you were reading? I, I will say for me, I mean, just the visual aspect was, it was so much better uh, in the show. Just being up on the wall and seeing it and everything. I don't know. Uh, it it didn't make as big an impression on me in the book. I was more focused on the characters, which sure. I... Honestly, that's better because it's it's a book. That's what it's for. Um, and, and that interiority, uh, you're not going to get that on, you know, on a show or film. Unless yeah, there's you can't. You can't sort of, a, you know, like an over the top monologue. What do you call it? A voiceover, which, you know. Yeah, you can only do, do that. that so that trick so much before it gets kind of old. Um, yeah. 
Well, I appreciate your time today. Fantastic, man. All right. Thank you for having me. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. For Prestige, me and Aaron are still extending our Shogun Afterglow with part three of our discussion of the 1980s TV miniseries. Last week absolutely shocked our sensibilities with Lord Toronaga doing the tango. What delights and horrors will await us this week? Then for Pulp, this Friday, join us for our latest prep session for House of the Dragon Season 2 as we take another look at the key differences between the text of Fire and Blood and the on-screen action for Season 1 and what they mean for the characters, story, and setting. Get your Valerian steel sharpened for the new season. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Madman and father of Mad Max, George Miller, is back with another apocalyptic tale from the Australian wastelands. This time we're getting a prequel featuring the origin story of Charlize Theron's character Furiosa, starring the Queen's Gambit's Anya Taylor-Joy in the title role and the mighty Thor Chris Hemsworth as the warlord Dr. Dementis. Furiosa promises more high-octane, slightly radioactive action and fun. Furiosa drives in the theaters on May 24th, and we'll have our spoiler-free thoughts and impressions of the film, as well as a discussion of trailers and upcoming movies for everyone. But if you want to ride with us the full length of the podcast on the eternal highways of Valhalla, shiny and chrome, you're going to have to be a club member. Join today at support.baldmove.com. Get our full discussion of Furiosa and many more first-run films, plus tons of other bonus podcasts and ad-free feeds. Support.baldmove.com. Steve, this episode begins with a fart. It does. And it ends with a smoke baby. <laughs> it does. Have, uh, one and the same, and you, you could argue. I think one probably foreshadows the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. This was a... This episode was a lot. <laughs> It was quite. There's quite a bit to talk about. Yeah, it's it was an unrelenting episode, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Should we talk about the uh, the smoke baby first? Maybe, maybe it'd be good to just get that out of the way. I mean, at this point, like, I mean, you know, I, I, we, we discussed the the ushering in of magic, right? I mean, and, and mm-hmm. how I, you know, it's it's a slow burn, which has been helpful for somebody like myself. You know, it's like, you know, we we. Dragons are mentioned again, but we still don't see them, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like we've seen them a couple times. But now, we've only seen a little bit of the smoke baby. Are we sure it's magic? <laughs> like, could I, there uh, be a biological reason for this? Uh, like, it was a lot of. It was more smoke than baby. <laughs> um, it was. Was it? Did it? Was it a man at one point? Did it already become a smoke man? We did Was see it... the uh, the famous graduate under the leg shot of the yeah story. yeah yeah that was um a different approach. Instead of Dustin Hoffman, it was like a smoke man. Yeah, the smoke man makes his way out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. So now there's just no getting around it, right? I mean, I would say that this episode is bookended by magic. Here's why I'm going to say this. 
Okay. So the two guys that get killed at the beginning, mm-hmm. the flatulator and the other guy. Right. Right after the the wolf attacks, there's a split screen. It's not there for a, a long period of time, but it's there. There's a split screen between Rob Stark's face and the wolf's face. Mm-hmm. That's true. Did you ever see the show Manimal when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Manimal. Manimal was a show in 1983. It only lasted one season. Mm-hmm. And it was a man who could turn into an animal. Yeah, it was essentially altered beasts, but before yeah. the game. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, you know, he would turn into, like, you know, a falcon and a... Panther, I believe, right? Uh, yeah, always a yeah, black panther. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, odd that he was a white guy, maybe? Sure. Odd that it would existed at all. I mean, like, <laughs> like I can't recall a single episode of Manimal. I think it was one of those things where, like, I would watch it sort of. Because, I mean, when you're a kid, I mean, 83. Well, yeah, in 83, we were eight years old. Right? Yeah, and so the idea of, like, hey, there's a show where a guy turns into an animal. And you're kind of hoping, like, well, I hope if it's an hour long, there's, like, 47 minutes of him turning into an animal. Like, mm-hmm. that's it's got to be constant. And instead, it was kind of like, well, you know, he's going to turn into an animal, like, maybe once or or he will have been an animal, and then later he won't be. And you're like, well, well this guy, he turned into a animal, and then he would solve crime. Right. Well, wouldn't you if you could turn into animals? <laughs> now, I think that George Martin was influenced by Manimal. <laughs> this is just a shot-for-shot shot remake of Manimal. Yeah, that's right. And here's why. In the books, you know, we have... Bran, who can turn into like he has these wolf dreams where he can yeah, see yeah. through his wolf's eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. In the books, there's a strong hint that all of these Stark children are wargs, and what that means is that they can at will send an astral projection of their consciousness into their wolf. Mm. Okay, this is not played up in the show. Basically, Bran's the only one that sort of has this ability in the show. But there are strong hints that Rob is able to spy on the enemy because he can see through the wolf's eyes. Mm. You see this split screen between his wolf, Grey Wind, and then Rob's face. And it's almost as if the show is bookending the magic of the wolf and the magic of the red priestess. Smoke baby. Yeah, smoke baby. Smoke baby. Anyway, so I thought that was interesting. I thought that was a, a nice, at least, nod to book readers, even if they're not going to really develop the theme. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and here's, and, I mean, we've talked about my feelings on magic and whatnot, and how it, it feels like now you can do whatever you want, right? Yes. Yeah. It that's the challenge, and um, and my my whole thing is like I can I can handle a certain amount of fantasy as long as there are rules, and if you keep changing the rules as you introduce magic, it feels like there are no rules anymore Mm -hmm. if you have unlimited magical abilities i'm less inclined to be on the edge of my seat right i mean it's like well then just magic your way out of it there jeff because like you know i've got into the political intrigue i'm in like oh but then by the way there's a smoke baby now so it's like okay well you asked me the question you know which which king do i go to but you didn't tell me there was smoke babies involved right i mean like i don't know that and so now it's like, well, now I have to change my answer. Well, now you know. I, mean, I understand there's one area has got dragons and one got smoke babies. Another one has got remote control wolves now. And then the political theater and, and the jockeying for position suddenly uh, feels moot. It's well, now whoever has the most magic. Here's the thing about that. Because we see Danny at the gates of Karth, right? Mm-hmm. Danny's 
in the running for the most magical woman we've met. Right? Sure. All right. Sure. Absolutely. She's got smoke babies of her own. Yeah. You know, she's got yeah. three dragons. And yet this does not necessarily mean that she's a powerful person. She still has to play the political game with these 13 merchants or whoever they are. And so I don't know if these are sort of meeting the criterion of rules that you're looking for here. But clearly, well, she's the person got that does dragons. Well, yeah, when the person get, that doesn't have teenage dragons. <laughs> yeah, the person who has the most magic is not necessarily going to be the most powerful. You got to be able to know how to wield it. You don't just have a smoke baby, and <laughs> you got to do something with it, right? I mean, that's. I never give parental advice. <laughs> I've had two kids. I know how hard it is. I feel like other people's parenting styles are their own business. <laughs> Judge a mother by her smoke, baby. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, may, I mean, next time it could just be a regular kid. It's like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's just a phase. <laughs> it's going through its smoke phase. Um, <laughs> if you were on the fence with Joffrey, <laughs> I feel like I mean, not that I, I can imagine there were a lot of people that were, but this is this is sort of the It's always the handsome ones that turn into devils. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh that was that was bothersome. <laughs> I mean obviously. Bron and Tyrion are really underestimating how monstrous Tyrion or uh yeah and so that was what i was kind of wondering too because is this gonna is Tyrion gonna be taken aback like oh i had no idea he was like this this takes me as a surprise or was this like okay now i know like was it with Tyrion? i feel like everything is a touch of an experiment yeah that's right i think so and so it kind of feels like the way he plays lancel's but i mean he plays lancel like a fiddle oh yeah that's great he i mean he (laughs) from start to finish Lancel's yeah. just no match. No, 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 no. Even at the end with the, with the let's drink. Oh, you don't have a cup. <laughs> he just closes the door. On. I was like, that such a mic drop moment at that point. Okay. The hound. There, there's the, that scene where the hound kind of gives Joffrey a side eye. Yeah. And it's sort of this little glimpse that maybe he's not as amoral or immoral as Joffrey and maybe not as loyal to Joffrey as maybe it seems. And then he's the first person to offer his cloak. So then we juxtapose that with Arya, who's got a little, uh, little list. I want to talk about Arya's list. Yeah. That list is fascinating. All right. So here are the people on her list. Joffrey, Cersei, Illyn Payne, the Hound. Do you remember who Illyn Payne is? I don't. Okay. That's where I was having a hard time. Yeah, yeah. He's the headsman. We meet him in the very, one of the very first episodes. He's like, he doesn't have a tongue, so he never speaks. Mm. And he's the one that actually takes off Ned's head. Got it. Okay. Uh, So, so yeah. So this is her Deadpool. This is her Deadpool. That's right. Yeah. So, so, and the hound's on her list. So in the, at the same time that we're sort of learning that the hound is maybe more complicated, mm-hmm. we're also finding out that Arya wants him dead. Yeah. And then he ends up putting the mountain and 
Tolliver on her list at the end. Right. You know, there's I think that there's three actors that end up playing the mountain in the show. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so keep an eye out for the Okay. The ro- the rotating mountain actors. So is this similar to like like are there Game of Thrones fans that are similar to James Bond fans who insist there's only like oh the he this was the best mountain. Oh no no. Oh, I'm sure that there are people that make that determination. But he's not exactly integral. Remember when they tried to swap out face with a different actor? Yeah. I'm talking about A-Team. Right. So it's one of the four main actors. Yeah. That's, you can't yeah, do that. Well, I mean, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's dad changes from uh, the first time we see him. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So that's her list. So we're going to, there's a lot made of Arya's list. We get to hear that for the first time. So that, I mean, the assumption being that um, this list is like, this is keeping her alive, the idea of getting her revenge to us. I mean, she's out there in the cold, she's laying on the ground, she's making her list, and this Mm -hmm. is... So, like, that's she's got this idea about starting to sort of thrive on the idea of revenge. Which which mirrors Rob, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Rob is exposed for not having a, a, a grander plan. Rob has a meat cube. He does have a meat cute. And this meat cute is the one that sort of reveals it like, hey, you don't wolf cage, so you unseat the king, and then what? And, and now, like, that's right. Now, but meat cute, we could spell M E A T. Sure. We absolutely could. <laughs> because some guy's getting meat cut off his. Yeah. Body. Yeah. It's just, it was a relentless episode. In that yeah, regard. really. It was. You have amputations going on. And he's impressed by Talisa. All right. So Talisa, yeah. she is. She's a, she, she's caught his eye because of the way she wields that surgical saw. Apparently, yeah. And what she puts to him is, well, if you don't want to be king, then you, you're going to throw this entire kingdom into chaos. And then you're going to go back up north. And if you don't have a plan for what happens after, then what what are you thinking? Right. I think that is an interesting way to, to frame it, too, because she's like, look, it'd be one thing if you had this, if <laughs> I don't have to agree with the plan, but at least I could say, OK, and then you're going to rule. Fine, I guess. <laughs> but now it's like and then you're just going to go do it and essentially avenge your father mm-hmm. and and then go back home. Because even he says, well, I'll go back to Winterfell. It's like, well, well, and he's only ever sought counsel from people who are all in on the war idea. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of the first person who's ever said, hey, maybe this is kind of a stupid idea. Maybe vengeance isn't the only reason to go to war. You know? Right. And now he's in a spot where it's like, he's kind of pot committed to this thing. So we see the the Baratheons. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Renly and Stannis have a, their little parlay, right? Right. And Renly really plays his hand about like what he sees in terms of like sort of that leadership quality. But he's that leader that's like the friendly leader. He played a lot of his hand by saying the word friends. Yeah. I thought that was interesting because. Well, we have that power theme extended, right? Right. We've got a a few different people's take. A lot of these different people have a view of what power is. And for Renly, having friends and and the right kind of friends Mm -hmm. is a source of power for him. And, you know, sheer numbers. Sheer numbers are going to help him out. And Stannis gives him an ultimatum and. Did he already know Smoke Monster at this point was on the table? <laughs> I mean, or does he know that he's going to have a, a smoke baby? Yeah, I think he knows something weird is going to happen. I'm not. I, my, my, I, I got the take that the priestess was like, hey, you got to get me 
get me ashore. It's all part of the plan or something along those lines. I don't. He doesn't really want to know. He's yeah. like, Davos, you get her to shore and we're never going to speak about this again. There's a, a motherhood theme in this. We got the mother dragons, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Stannis says to Renly, you know, for the sake of the mother who bore us. Right. And then, of course, Melisandre gives birth. Well, uh, then you've got Baelish is uh, appealing to, to motherhood. Yes. And, and, the, and, you know, and once again, proving he's just he's just a turd. He's a turd, but boy, he's smart, man. No, yeah, he's smart. He doesn't quite claim to have Arya. He just says she's healthy and wild as ever, you know? Yeah. Just giving enough information so that he can, like, deny it later on. Exactly. This episode has... I think this episode departs from the book narrative more than any other I've I've seen so far. Is that right? Yeah. What being the big difference or differences? Well, we talked about the Joffrey scene, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this does not happen in the books. In fact, Roz, the prostitute, she's not even a character in the books. Oh, okay. Uh, so there's that. That's kind of a pretty big... Yeah. That is a big so so is there another form of um Joffrey demonstrating this or is this something that they've just uh, made a, a choice for the series So Joffrey is he's older in the books mm. and there's discussion of him mutilating a cat when he's younger mm-hmm. He does sort of a lot of psychological torture with Sansa So as somebody who's a a fan of the novel what does this do for you from a, uh, a, like, looking at the trajectory of the character and what happens next? Does this feel, does this cheapen it? Does this add a, a different nuance? Does now it just feel like, okay, I'm on a different adventure altogether? I think it's gratuitous. I think it's unnecessary. I feel like, unless it's crucial for the larger statement that you're trying to make with the show, that kind of grotesque violence, specifically with, Underclass women is sort of unnecessary. Hmm. That's my. You feel like we have enough to go on with Joffrey as is. I think so. It's it's not like there was any sort. Of, the jury wasn't really out on Joffrey. Like right. Like we already knew Joffrey was a monster. Yeah. He killed Ned, and then he forced Sansa to look at Ned's head. Integral yeah. to the plot. Integral to the plot. This this is just. I feel like this is just an excuse to put more boobs on the screen and underscores Joffrey's nature, which we already knew. Right. But in, ter- in terms of what it does for the relationship with him and Tyrion. Tyrion's treating Joffrey as if he can be distracted by a, his own sexuality. And what Tyrion does not know at this point is that Joffrey, uh, <laughs> Joffrey's a monster. He's <laughs> an absolute <laughs> Nightmare human. He goes full monster. Right. Which, you know, there's a degree of magic in that. You know, I mean, there is a an otherworldly sense of, you know, like when you when you remove morality, mm. you know, what what's a smoke baby at this point? In the book, she has two smoke babies. Oh. Yeah, like twin smoke babies. Twin smoke babies. Yeah. That's a lot to take care of. <laughs> What do you feed a smoke baby? I'm assuming that they don't breastfeed. Only like 45-year-old men breastfeed in this show. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) 
but that's the thing is it's like didn't it become a smoke man didn't we see smoke man legs before it yeah i guess you don't really need to to suckle the the baby if he just becomes a man right away well what i'm saying is now that he's a 45 year old man he can breastfeed because <laughs> that's the rules of the show of the Those, yeah we're talking about the rules of the show right so yeah that's... yeah i i understand them in regards to everything yeah everything ends like the grapes of wrath <laughs> In lieu of a traditional bird's eye view this week, I will include a short interview with a colleague of mine, colleague and friend named Chris Keith, who is probably the world's foremost expert on ancient book culture. He, like me, started out with religious studies, and because his research started touching on social scientific study, started being interested in other wider topics. His work in the last probably 15 years has mostly related to how ancient cultures interact with written text. And so I thought I would include a short interview with him because we meet in this chapter Tyrion, who is reading to himself silently, which struck me as very odd for an ancient, uh, an ancient book culture, for an ancient culture or a medieval culture, reading a book silently to oneself bespeaks a very elite level of education, and a very strange practice. So here's my short interview with Chris Keith. Dr. Keith. Yes, sir. Uh, so just for the record, I asked you to record this interview about 30 seconds ago. Yeah, you did. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> So I want to ask you about uh, ancient book culture, and I'm hoping to do this in five minutes. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why books? Why not scrolls? What does a book do for me that a scroll doesn't do for me? Well, uh, a book is a scroll for ancient book culture. Uh, a book, the words, the Hebrew, uh, Greek, and Latin words that get translated as book can mean either scroll or codex, depending on what time period you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume your question means what does a codex do for you? Yeah. That a scroll doesn't. It depends on when you're asking. Uh, in the earliest stages, codices were regarded as less than literary forms of written communication. So think about the way that you might use a notebook in your kitchen to keep recipes like I know you do, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Ladon. I do. And yeah. so they would they would be used that way. Uh, Christians were the first people to start using codices for literary works or more literary works. Initially, they were they were kind of um, uh, work, I don't want to say workmen, but they but they they weren't official literary products. The scroll was, and then eventually, uh, when Christians began using codices, um, predominantly for their texts, they they still use scrolls, but they started using the codex form more than everybody else did. And then Constantine made Christianity the imperial religion. Then codices really, really took off and kind of never looked. So back. really, the really Roman culture is the rise of the codex culture. Um, it's really Christian dominance within Roman culture. Okay, all right. You know, uh, because because codices were used in Roman culture before Christians. Christians just through accelerated everything in an unexpected way. Mm -hmm. 
And what about the, tell me about the class distinctions between the kind of people that would own or commission books versus other sorts of people. By and large, this is the biggest difference between their world and our world is that we think of books as something that everybody has access to, at least here in the modern West, where education is publicly funded. And so literacy is the norm. In the ancient world, illiteracy was the norm. Now, people still read books. People still made books. Mm -hmm. But it really was a specialist thing. So when we think about large groups having access to the tradition in a book, we really need to think about a handful of literate people who would read aloud to the majority of illiterate people. This was true for the synagogue. It was true for uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the world at that time. So someone like, I don't know, I'm thinking about like the Ethiopian eunuch who's sort of reading silently to himself. Highly um, specialized skill. Highly special. So this would not be, this would be like a 1% education, elite education kind of person that would just sit and read quietly to themselves. Yes. Yeah. There were very few people who could read at that level. Uh, They were there and they were often in government ranks. I mean, the fact that this guy is seemingly a representative government official is not a surprise. Mm. Um, You know, reading books at this level was almost like... uh, and sorry, I should probably say he's, he was probably someone who was tasked to do it for the ruler. So this was his role um, as a eunuch, quite possibly as a as a slave. Uh, the text doesn't say that, but it would not be a surprise if it was someone in servitude. And they used reading and writing of books the way that rich people today use chauffeurs. Mm. And they probably could read themselves like people today. Some of them could drive themselves. but. Mm-hmm. Their ability to have somebody else do it for them is indicative of their status. And the mystique around sort of the written word, is this something close to kind of like, I don't know, magical incantation? Or is it a little bit less, is it a little bit more demystified than that? It it could be both. It, It was not just like magical incantation. In much of the ancient world, it was magical incantation. I mean, the written word was an important part of incantation bowls, for example. There's a lot of apotropaic and magical texts that use writing in this way. And it is mysterious in some cases because, you know, most people couldn't read it. You had to be a specialist to read it. In other cases, there's a lot of places where it looks like nobody was supposed to read it. It was supposed to look like a magical language that you couldn't mm. that you couldn't just read under normal circumstances. So, and then in other ways, it's a way to highlight the role of an interpreter. You know, you think about the writing of the writing on the, on the wall in Daniel. You know, it's numinous, but it's numinous in a way that requires special knowledge. So all of a sudden, the person that has that knowledge is elevated. Right. So if you could read. If you could read an incantation, you're basically like a wizard or a magician or something. A priest. You're yeah, a, priest. a priest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are uh, these ancient codices made out of? What's the material of them? Uh, usually parchment, so um, animal skin. And there was a long process to get to make it worth that. I mean, it, when we're talking about the big codices, like Codex Sinaiticus or Codex Vaticanus, you could also have codices made of papyrus, which was um, the ancient forerunner of paper today. 
most scrolls were made from papyrus, but also you have animal hide scrolls. Yeah, yeah. Well. The great the great Isaiah scroll, for example, is is animal hide. Famously found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, and on display in the Book of the Shrine in Jerusalem. And what how do we how are we um binding these things? How are they bound together? Uh, in a lot of different ways, but you know, for a codex, you would have essentially if you took uh, you know, a, a sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper, and then you folded it long ways, you know, yeah. you, you, you had three or four together, and then you folded them long ways, and then that created the spine, right? That's called a choir. And they would do that four or five or so. Actually, I don't really know how many times, but it, but it, it depends on the size of the book. And then you would have, you would put those individual choirs together, and then you would sew them together, to create the, you know, the appearance of the book. It was, this was a, this was a highly technical and artisan task. Hmm. A lot of times we think of ancient scribes as people who just wrote words on the text and they did that, but they were also the people who had to prepare the text, line the text, measure it. All right, man, that's it. Thanks for playing along. Did we make five minutes or did we go over? I think we went over, but I think it's okay if we went over a little bit. All right, brother. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So just an FYI, mm-hmm. that's going to go out to 40,000 listeners. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. On a Game of Thrones podcast that I do. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. So, uh, uh, Chris, since you did me this favor, are there any. You should have negotiated. Man, what am I thinking? I yeah, should have been here. Since you did me this last minute favor, uh, is there anything that you'd like to draw our listeners' attention to? Uh, my latest book is called The Gospel as Manuscript, an early history of the Jesus tradition as material artifact. So it very much deals with all of these issues. And that's Oxford Press? Oxford University Press. Yeah, and yeah. also, I just had TNT Clark just issued a revised edition of a book called Jesus Against the Scrabble Elite, The Origins of the Conflict. Which is up for some kind of fancy award, I saw. Yeah, yeah, it was nominated for an award. Mm-hmm. Don't you get sick of winning those awards? <laughs> well, I, w- I would if I had a podcast that had 40,000 listeners, but I don't. So I cling, I cling to my meager accomplishment. <laughs> All right. So I I appreciate that. I was thinking, you know, I should say something about ancient book culture. But I said, you know, if I do that. I'm just going to be plagiarizing Chris. <laughs> I, I was thinking, you know, if he's got five minutes, I should just like, I should just twist his arm and get him on and record him talking for five minutes about book culture. Uh, oh, man. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, thank, I really appreciate it. All right, brother. Let me know when it goes live. I, I will let you know. Thanks, man. Mm-hmm.